Well, amen. It's good to see you all this morning, and thank you uh, for being faithful to God's house. This is the final Sunday in the month of August. When we gather next Sunday, of course, it'll be Labor Day weekend, first Sunday of September. And I just have to tell you that many times churches view the fall months as opportunities to grow, and we should certainly look at that no differently. But I just have to tell you, God's been so good to us this summer, and he's allowed us to see growth during the summer months, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And we're glad that you're here. A couple of weeks ago, I heard of a man who pulled on our property for the Sunday morning service, and he drove all over and couldn't find a parking spot. And, um, and I think that's probably one of the best problems that a church can have. It is a problem, and probably something that we need to address here before too long. But I'm glad to hear that folks are coming, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. I want to, before we get into the message this morning, I want to recognize someone very, very special. I'm going to ask Mrs. Bonnie Wilson. Bonnie, would you stand for just a moment? Uh, Bonnie Wilson and her husband, who went home to be with the Lord in 2005, have been missionaries in Mexico for 57 years. Let's give her a round of applause. Would you do that for me? And uh, we're so glad to have the Mrs. Wilson with us. And uh, she is going to be um, sharing some things with our church tonight. She told me earlier this week on the phone, I'm not a preacher. And uh, I said, well, you know, somebody who's been on the field for 57 years certainly has something to say and can teach us some things. And so she's going to share some uh, testimony tonight, maybe a brief video as well. Uh, and uh, she's serving in the, country, in the city of Leon, Mexico. And many of you remember the name Karen Nolan. And Karen was a missionary sent out of our church and worked with uh, Bonnie and her husband for several years before she had to transition back to the States to take care of some uh, family uh, matters and that sort of thing. But Bonnie, thank you so much for being here today. She has a little display table set up in the back. You could be seated. And uh, if you would like to go by there, grab a prayer card, I would encourage you to do so. And I asked her this morning, I said, how long have we been supporting you? And uh, we can't necessarily maybe put an exact date on it, but she said, I think almost since the very beginning. And uh, I think that's such a wonderful testimony uh, of our church and of them partnering together uh, to reach lost souls in the country of Mexico. And she shared with me that the church there is doing well and uh, God is blessing, souls are being saved. And, uh, and I'm so excited to have Mrs. Wilson with us today. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them and go with me to the book of Genesis chapter number 39, please. Genesis chapter number 39 is where we'll find our text this morning. We are preaching, for those of you that perhaps are guests with us today, uh, we are preaching a series here on the life of Joseph, who, uh, truth be told, is probably my favorite character in all of the Bible, apart certainly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just so many, many great lessons that we can learn from Joseph's life. And in reality, if you really consider it, Joseph is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, so much of the way Joseph lives his life and the things God uses him to do are pictures, really, uh, of what the Lord Jesus Christ would someday do during his earthly ministry. Uh, we're looking in chapter 39, we're looking in the seventh verse, and if you can follow along with me as I read, uh, we can look at this together. The Bible says in verse number seven of Genesis 39, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me, but he refused, and said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her, 
to lie by her or to be with her. It came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. It came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. It came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. It came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant unto me that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. I'd like to preach to you a message this morning that I've entitled, Life in Egypt. Life in Egypt. In the year 1994, I was given a unique opportunity to visit a foreign country. My dad was going to be preaching at several churches in the country of the Philippines, and he invited me to come along. I was a sophomore in high school at that point in time, and I don't suppose that I was fully prepared for what awaited me on this trip to this third world country. I had never been any place like that before. I was taken aback by several things. I remember the standard of living there compared to what I was familiar with or what I was used to here in America was so different. Here in our country, we, many of us, we live in houses that have multiple rooms and and, uh, and, and there's, uh, you know, there, there's rooms for our kids to play in, and there's rooms for storage, and there's rooms for us to sleep in, and there's rooms for us to cook in, and, and, and there's, just, there's just, all of us are familiar with that sort of thing, but for the most part, this isn't the case all the way across the board, but in a place like that, that is a very unfamiliar thing for, for people like that. Many families live, literally, they all live within one room. Uh, They sleep on the floor. They make their meals in that same room. They don't even have indoor plumbing. Many of them have to use sort of a communal restroom. And uh, and so it's just a very different, very, very different place. I I remember another thing that kind of stuck out to me uh, was the way that folks drove in those places. I, um, I remember being there in the country of the Philippines, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, in America, we're not allowed to do that kind of stuff, you know. We have to stop at red lights, and uh, we, we can't just, you know, cut people off like that, and, and uh, we don't, well, some of, us, some of us don't honk the horn as often as maybe it gets honked in places like that, and I remember thinking uh, to myself, you know, the rules here are, are a whole lot different. If there are any rules, they're a whole lot different than the ones that I'm familiar with. I remember another thing that stood out to me. I, I was astounded by, uh, by, by how late people stay out in places like that. You know, here in America, for the most part, by a certain time of the day, the streets get very, very quiet, and, and, uh, and folks pretty much are in their homes. They're maybe resting. They're going to sleep. They're perhaps maybe just doing a few things before they, uh, before they pillow their head. But by and large, the, uh, the streets are, are pretty empty. But one thing I noticed in the Philippines, it, it hardly mattered what time of day it was. 
Uh, if I was out late at night, there was always a ton of traffic and people walking on the streets. I, I remember one time driving by a funeral home. It was probably 11 o'clock at night and there were hundreds of people standing in the funeral home and standing outside of the funeral home. And I thought to myself, boy, these funeral homes keep odd hours. We don't do that in the United States of America. I, 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 I mean, I've seen all different types of things. And I just remember thinking to myself, life is really, really different here. I suppose the thing that maybe stood out to me the most is, is that uh, when I walked out of the airport, as a sophomore in high school, walked out of the airport there in Manila for the very first time, I, I was greeted with two things that I was quite unfamiliar with. Number one was heat. It's really hot over there. Really, really hot over there. And then the other thing was there's an unusual smell in that country. It was, the, it was a smell of, of millions of people living all in one little area, most, most of the uh, things that we would say, you know, pollution and the regulations and that sort of thing do not exist in places like that. Their vehicles are much older, and so there was just a general sense of a smell of pollution and smog in that place. And uh, the truth of the matter is, I was there this past March. It's improved a little bit, but by and large, life there is the same as it was 30 years ago. It's just different. It's not anything that I'm used to. Since then, I've traveled to many different places and have discovered that life in those places is usually very different than life as we know it here. Now imagine for a moment what it must have been like for, uh, for Joseph as he was relocated against his will to the nation of Israel, or the nation of Egypt, taken from his family, sold to a man in Egypt as a slave, faced with learning a new culture, a new language, a new way of life. I'm sure for him the food was different. The homes were different. Their style of education was different. The weather was different. Their rules and laws were different. And no doubt their religion was very different as well. I mean, everything about Egypt and life in Egypt was new, and it was different for Joseph. And I'm sure it must have been fairly overwhelming to him. As far as we can tell, he's probably maybe 17 or 18 years old when most of this transpires. Maybe a little bit older than that, but not much. I'm sure life seemed to be going fairly well. As we read the first six verses, we talked about it last week, that God was with him and the Lord was helping him to prosper. And he seems to be thriving in the first six verses of Genesis chapter number 39. But life, listen, life in Egypt is very different. And Joseph is going to find that out in very, very short order. You say, what's the point this morning? Where are you going with this? As believers, we are compared, in the Bible, we are compared to strangers, to sojourners, and to pilgrims here on this earth. The Bible says in Psalm 39 in verse number 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. In Hebrews 11 and verse number 13, the Bible says these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed. Here's what they confessed, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. First Peter 2 and verse number 11 Peter writes these words, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The songwriter wrote these words, This world is not my home. 
I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Jesus said in John 14 and verse number two, I go to prepare a place for you. The scriptures say in Hebrews 11 and verse number 16 about believers, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. I just want you to know something. I have a temporary address down here, but I have a permanent address address over there. One of these days, I will take up residence in my eternal home, and I'm looking forward to that great day. But the, but the present reality, the present truth is that I'm not there yet. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm still down here. Oh, I have a home there. It's a place that's being prepared for me by the Lord Jesus Christ and by my heavenly Father, but I'm not there yet. I'm still down here, and life down here is much different than life will be someday in my eternal home. I thought a little bit this week about what life is going to be like up there compared to what it is down here. The Holy Spirit of God reveals uh, to us a little bit about how life there is different than life down here. Would you hold your place here in the very first book of the Bible, and would you go all the way to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 21? We find a description of what life will be in God's house, in our forever home, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. And I don't know about you, but when I read these words, my heart is lifted with hope and with joy to think about what is waiting for us on the other side. But I want you to compare what what God tells us about his home and the place that he's preparing for us, I want you to think about how different it is from what we know of of life here in this place. Would you look in Revelation 21 and verse number four? The Bible says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. How is life different in God's house in heaven than it is here? Well, I mean, just a small list. In that place, the Bible tells us that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's encouraging, isn't it? The Bible tells us that there will be no more death. I was thinking as I was preparing for the message, someday, someday I will attend my last funeral. You say, who's it going to be? It's going to be mine, of course. <laughs> I'll attend my own last funeral, right? I'll have gone to my last funeral home. I'm looking forward to that day. I don't enjoy enjoy going to funeral homes. I don't enjoy being around death and being around things like that. There will be no more death in God's eternal home. The Bible says there will be no more sorrow and no more crying. Someday I will cry my last tear. Isn't that something to think about? I won't have to do it anymore. There'll be nothing to cry about. There'll be nothing to be sorrowful about. Everything in that place will be beautiful and will be wonderful. Listen, in God's house, there will be no more pain. Someday, someday I will hurt for the final time. Someday. You say, what hurt is that going to be? I have no idea. I don't know what hurt that's going to be, but the day is coming in which the, the pain will be inflicted on me for the last time 
And when I get to my eternal home, there'll be none of those things. The former things, listen, the former things are passed away. You say, well, he didn't, he didn't touch on the thing that drives me the craziest down here. Well, just mark it down. He's, he's summarizing all of it when he says the former things are passed away. Whatever it is that troubles you, whatever it is that bothers you, whatever it is that gives you issues and problems, those things will be a distant memory in God's house. But we aren't there yet. We're still here. We look forward to eternal life without these things that have been referenced here in Revelation 21, but that life isn't here yet. Egypt in the Bible often represents a picture of sin and a picture of the world. Many times when God's people were running from him, they would, they would go to Egypt. As I've studied many of those passages of Scripture, you'll discover that most often the Bible says that they would go down into Egypt. I'm here to tell you that that is a geographically correct statement. If you're living in the land of Canaan or you're living in the promised land, to get to Egypt, you do have to go south. But here's what I believe. I believe that's speaking about much more than just a geographic location. I believe that God's people, when they drift off into sin and they drift off into the world, and when they run to the world for, uh, for safety or for protection or perhaps to live life the, their own way, God says that's going down. It's going down every time. Egypt represents bondage because of the 430 years that Israel served them as slaves. Egypt represents trusting the flesh as opposed to trusting in God's power you see, God gave a message to his prophet Isaiah, these words in Isaiah 31 and verse number one, woe to them, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. In verse number three, God says this, now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses flesh and not spirit. You see, God's people got into a habit when they'd find themselves in trouble, when they'd find themselves dealing with problems, they would begin to look around and they'd say, who's, who's strong enough that we could hire to help us? What army can we bring in here that we can put our trust in? And what God wanted them to do every time was God wanted them to put their trust in him, not to put their trust in some army, not to put their trust in some chariots, not to put their trust in some horses. On many occasions, they would try to hire Egypt and God took offense at that. God reminded them, hey, the Egyptians, they're just men. They're not God. You're putting all of your trust in Egypt and you won't put your trust in me who can do anything? What a very foolish choice and foolish decision. Egypt represents the pagan, heathen people and lifestyles that they embrace apart from knowing God. Joseph's first days in Egypt might have looked like things were going to pick up for him, but he would soon discover that life in Egypt is a very, very difficult thing. And what are some lessons that we can learn from Joseph's time in Egypt as we consider that in many respects, we're living in Egypt as well, surrounded by worldly people who do not know God, surrounded by temptation. It's all around us. At any moment, you and I could make a, a poor choice or a poor decision that could destroy so much of what God has built into our lives. How ought you and I to live a life in Egypt as we compare what Joseph experienced to what Joseph dealt with with what you and I are dealing with today? Let me share four things with you from this text. Number one, can I say this? 
Let me say, never get too comfortable living in Egypt. Never get too comfortable living in Egypt. I think it's interesting. We have the first six verses, and everything seems to be going well. In verse number seven, the tone begins to shift, and it came to pass. Years ago, I visited Kenya, and we we took one night and, and, and a couple of days to enjoy some time at a game reserve. They, they say that one of the bucket list items for a lot of people is the opportunity to go to the continent of Africa and to see the animals in the wild, in their natural habitat. And I got an opportunity to experience that. It was pretty amazing. We went to a, uh, we went to a place called Sweetwater's Tented Camp, and we actually stayed in tents on the grounds of where these animals roam. We went out, we went out that night and, and we were looking for the animals that come out at night. You know, there's animals that sleep during the day. They're nocturnal. They come out at night and that's when they feed upon their prey. That's when they eat. And uh, we were, we went looking for them. We'd seen everything that we wanted to see during the day. And we were, I'll just be frank, we were looking for the lions and the hyenas and the, you know, the cheetahs and the leopards and that sort of thing. And, and I, I remember I was, you know, sort of taking it all in, just trying to look around and assess my surroundings. And there was something that bothered me just a little bit the tents that we were staying in surrounded the watering hole. There's not a lot of water in those parts of the world. And, and so a lot of times the animals would come to that watering hole. And I remember asking the guide, I said, sir, I said, I, I noticed around my tent, there's not like a fence or a wall or anything like that. And I said, that is a little concerning to me. And, um, and, and I said, uh, what's to keep the lions from eating me tonight, you know, as a prey instead of, you know, taking a zebra down, what's to keep them from eating me? And he says, oh, oh, he says, you don't have to worry about that. He said, you see, there's little lights outside of your tent and the lions, they don't like to come by those little lights. And I thought to myself, you know, I need something a little bit better than that, sir. I'm gonna, I'm gonna need a little bit more assurance that, that I'm gonna be safe and that I'm going to be okay. That, that, that's literally what he told me. He said, he said, the lights, those will keep you safe. And I just have to tell you, when we got back that night, we'd seen some lions and and we had seen some other things, and, and he dropped us off in the parking lot, and I had to walk to my tent. And I just have to tell you, you know the Bible talks about walking circumspectly? I was walking circumspectly that night. I mean, every sound to me was a lion <laughs> hiding behind a tree. In fact, my, uh, my roommate that night, we were sleeping, and, and uh, he was sleeping one bed, I was sleeping the next. I woke up about three in the morning, and I could hear, literally outside my tent, I could hear growling, and, and I thought to myself, this is it. It all ends right here. And as I came to more and more, I realized it's actually my roommate. He was snoring. But anyways, uh, but true story. I, I remember that, that night, I, I just felt like I couldn't be completely comfortable. I couldn't just, just be myself like I might be in my own home or if I were maybe staying in a hotel in which I had a door that was locked and I you know, could, could deadbolt the door. And I, I, I just felt like a little bit more secure. And, I, and I, 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 I was thinking to myself that without anything separating me from that danger, that danger that could be lurking, that could devour me if given the opportunity, that I couldn't get completely comfortable. Joseph's service in Potiphar's house and his time in Egypt were off to a pretty good start as we've already acknowledged from verses one to six. Though he is a slave, God's hand is on him, making him to prosper and to be preferred above the others by his master Potiphar. His presence in Potiphar's house, listen, it's a positive for everyone. It's a positive for Potiphar's business interests as the Lord blesses his house because of Joseph living and working there. And it might have been that Joseph was starting to 
in essence, develop a comfort level and maybe even growing, maybe even growing just a little bit to like where he was as a result of God's hand of blessing following him there. Listen, Joseph would soon learn that Egypt is a dangerous place for godly people. He would discover that Egyptians, listen, Egyptians routinely participate in worldly wicked activities. Egyptians don't know God. Egyptians don't fear God. And Egyptians don't abide by God's laws. Can I remind you that the devil's attacks are usually perfectly timed? He likes to seize upon us when we are relaxed and when we are vulnerable. He will wait for the moment when you remove your spiritual body armor and he will attack at that very moment. He comes upon us when we least expect it. Sometimes after moments of great success and victory, we think, hey, listen, I have defeated the devil. I'm flying high. And it's in that moment that he reappears, the devil will pounce. He will certainly look to attack us when we are down and discouraged, but he'll also look to attack us when we're succeeding and when we're prospering, as he does here in the life of Joseph. The point is this. Here's the point. Here's what I want you to take away from this. There is never a time that you and I can grow too comfortable while living down here in Egypt. You might have walked in, and you might have thought, you know, I've been on a roll here. Six months without whatever it is that I struggle with the most. And by the way, the Bible talks about the sin that does so easily beset us. And you might have walked into this room saying it's been six months, it's been a year, maybe it's just been six weeks, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm moving forward. I feel like I'm moving ahead and maybe just, maybe I can let my guard down a little bit. I'm here to remind you, never, never get too comfortable living in Egypt. Always, always have your armor on. We're told in, in, in Ephesians chapter number six that we are to put on the whole armor of God. And I want to ask this question, when should you put that on? All the time. When can you take it off? I wouldn't if I were you. I wouldn't take the armor of God off. I'd put it on every morning and I'd make sure that it's on. I would make sure that I'm wearing it, that I'm utilizing it. Far too many of God's people have grown comfortable living down here in Egypt. Perhaps maybe you've gotten in the habit of laying down your sword. Perhaps maybe you, you've gotten in the habit of removing your breastplate. Maybe you, you no longer are wearing the shoes that God has, spiritually speaking, of course, the shoes that God has designed for you. You've gotten comfortable. You're living in Egypt. Don't get too comfortable living in Egypt. The moment that you think, hey, everything's good, I'm okay, I've seen some success, I'm enjoying some, pro, uh, some prospering, I remind you, the devil is just around the corner. Never get too comfortable living in Egypt. But notice, secondly, we discover a second thought, and that is this, prepare an escape route from temptation while living in Egypt. Prepare an escape route from temptation while living in Egypt. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And I studied Joseph's resistance here. He resisted over and over again. 
But I've, I've discovered some things about his resistance. I've discovered some things about the way that he, uh, the way that he resisted the temptation that I want to point out to you. Number one, I want you to notice that Joseph resisted based on his earned trust. Joseph resisted this temptation based on his earned trust. Would you look with me in verses eight and nine? Look what he says to Potiphar's wife. He refused and said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wadeth not what is with me in the house and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. So, so Joseph says, I, I can't do this because my master trusts me. I've worked hard to develop this trust and this relationship with him. Here's one thing that you'll discover, that, that trust can take a lifetime to earn and it can take a moment to lose. He understood that the trust he had from his master was complete. His master had given him access to everything. By the way, a very unusual thing for a slave to enjoy. But his master had given him access to every room in the house, to every, every single dollar that he had, to every servant that he had. His master said, listen, it's all yours. You can have it all. You can use it all. But there's one thing. There's one thing you can't have. And he understood that. He understood that yielding to this temptation might enable him to enjoy a few moments of pleasure. But listen, it would ultimately lead to him losing much more than he would ever gain. You know, you and I need to play that out in our minds, that scenario. When temptation comes your way, so could I do this? Will it bring some pleasure? Yes. But will I lose more by participating in this than I will gain? And by the way, the answer to that is yes, every single time. And Joseph resisted based on his earned trust. Notice secondly, Joseph resisted based on his belief in the sanctity of marriage. Look in verse number nine. He says, he has kept back nothing from me but thee because thou art his wife. I thought about this for a moment. Joseph grew up in a home where his dad had four wives. He grew up in a home where his brothers, some of them were failures morally. And yet somehow Joseph had come to the conclusion that the covenant between a husband and wife is a sacred one. And it is not, listen, it is not to be interfered with. He reminds her, you are a man's wife and that it would not be right, nor would it be appropriate for me to take something and to enjoy it if it doesn't belong to me. And so Joseph resisted based on his earned trust. He resisted based on his belief in the sanctity of marriage. But notice thirdly, Joseph resisted based on his accountability to God. The end of verse number nine, look what he says. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph already talked about his accountability to Potiphar, and that was running through his mind, why he couldn't do this. But at the end of the day, he says this. He says, really, there's a greater level of accountability that I have, and that is I have an accountability before God, that God sees and God knows. Here's what the devil will try to do. The devil will try to tempt you to sin and convince you that no one will ever know. One of the biggest lies of the devil is that one. No one will ever know. He'll tell you that. He'll tell you no one will ever have any idea. You're the one person who can do this and get away with it. My experience is that these kinds of things always come 
to light eventually. Might take a while. There might be an element in which there's some anonymity there. I participated in this. I did this and no one knows, but I'm here to remind you that these things eventually come to light at some point. But even if they didn't, even if you could commit a certain sin and go to your grave carrying that secret, I want you to know something. There's still an accountability someday. You will stand before God who sees and who knows every single thing that you've ever done. Every word you've ever said, every activity you've ever participated in. The Bible says in Job 34, verses 21 and 22, for his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. You see, I can, I can make things dark down here. I, I can operate under a level of darkness in which no human being can ever see. But here's what we're reminded of here in the book of Job. There is no darkness with God. It's as if the light of the, of the brightest sun in the middle of the noonday sky is shining upon me at all times. God always sees, God always knows. Proverbs 5 and verse number 21, the Bible says, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he pondereth all his goings. He sees it all. He knows it all. Proverbs chapter number 15 and verse number three, for the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. God sees it all. Joseph acknowledged this. And Joseph said, you know, my dad's not around. He might never know this. My brothers, they're not around. They'll never see. Potiphar's gone. That's why she's coming to me now because Potiphar, her husband, isn't around. Everyone else, the Bible says in the text, all of the men were out of the house. This was a, this was a moment in which he could take advantage of his fleshly lust. But he said this, he said, though no one else will see, I know, I know there's a God in heaven who's watching and who will see. And would to God, there were some men and there were some women There were some individuals here living in this church and in this community who said, yeah, maybe maybe my wife will never know. Maybe my parents will never know. Maybe my pastor will never know. But I know this, God sees and God knows and that's enough. That's enough to keep me from destroying my life and destroying the lives of others. Notice that Joseph not only resisted based on his earned trust and on the belief and the sanctity of marriage and on his accountability to God. But notice that Joseph resisted repeatedly. Look it says in verse number 10, and it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day. This wasn't a one-time occurrence. This wasn't a one-time thing. No, the devil came in the form of Potiphar's wife every single day. You know, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, if we could defeat a temptation in our lives once and then be done with it? You know, if we could just kind of resist it once and then think, okay, I'm good there. I don't have to worry about that anymore. But you know that's not how it works. You know the devil doesn't give up, that he keeps coming. Potiphar's wife approached Joseph daily and each time he resisted, Joseph was a slave and it would not have been possible, listen, it would not have been possible for him to remove himself from this temptation. But I wanna say this, I wanna say that if you find yourself suffering and facing the same temptation and it's an area where you're weak and it comes to you day after day after day, you better do something to change your habits. You, you, better, you better figure out something because, because, because likely you're probably not gonna be strong as Joseph was. 
You better, you better change some things. You better, you better maybe get rid of that, that television channel that you have access to. You might want to put a filter on your phone. You might want to drive a, a different route home. You might want to listen to a different podcast. You, want, you might want to try things just a little bit differently. Because I'm telling you, if you allow yourself to be tempted the same way, day after day after day, you mark it down, you're probably going to fall eventually. Joseph, he resisted repeatedly. Notice, notice Joseph resisted urgently. Verses 11 and 12, the day came in which Joseph was all alone. The boldness and aggressiveness of Potiphar's wife reached a fever pitch and she grabs a hold of him. And Joseph, the Bible says that he ran as fast as he could to get away from her. I love, I love his intense desire to maintain his purity. He might have looked, looked silly as he's running out of the house. What, what's in there? Is there a wild animal in there? Well, sort of. <laughs> it's a crazy woman. And she wants to take advantage of me. Yes, there's a wild animal in there. I'm getting as far away from her as I possibly can. Joseph, where's your, where's your coat? Where are your clothes? Man, I'm not worried about that. I'm trying to maintain my purity. I'm trying to maintain my dignity. Joseph ran urgently. Are you and I as dedicated to purity as Joseph was? I mean, willing to do, willing to do anything in order to keep ourselves pure. Have you ever had to run in order to get away from some temptation in your life? Let me just say, if you're going to live in Egypt, you'd better have your running shoes ready. We're all living there. You better be ready to run. Can I say number three about life in Egypt? Number three, let me say this. Remember, church family, Egyptians don't play by the rules. You're living in Egypt. Here's what you need to know. You need to know, church family, that Egyptians don't play by the rules. They don't abide by the laws. They do their own thing. Notice there's three rules that are violated in this text. Number one is the rule of marriage. The rule of marriage. We learn of that in verse 7. It's Potiphar's wife says, lie with me. Have a relationship with me physically. Divorced couples in Albuquerque, New Mexico can take advantage of a new business in town. The company is called Freedom Rings, jewelry for the divorced. It's founded by jeweler and divorcee Lynn Peters. The company makes custom jewelry out of wedding rings. Each customer at Freedom Rings pays a fee. The company makes custom, uh, and the ring smashing ceremony begins, complete with champagne and music. Just before the smashing, the MC says, we will now release any remaining ties to your past by transforming your ring, which represents the past, into a token of your new beginning. Now take the hammer. Stop for a moment to consider the transformation that is about to begin your new life. Ready? With this swing, let freedom ring. She then uses a four-pound sledgehammer to whack her emblem of love and fidelity, fidelity into a shapeless piece of metal. And the ceremony ends with women pounding their wedding rings into pendants and men grinding theirs into golf ball markers. It's the world we're living in. This is, this is Egypt. This is how Egypt views marriage. It's no big deal. Doesn't really mean a whole lot. Yeah, those vows you made, they're meant to be broken everybody's doing it. The rules of marriage are not abided by in Egypt. But notice, not only the rules of marriage, but the rules of honesty. Egyptians don't play by the rules. In verses 13 to 18, the Bible says that Joseph ran in his haste to get away. And when he did, the Bible says because she had a hold of him, he left his coat in her hands. She sat for a moment. No doubt she was embarrassed and humiliated. But then she looked down and she saw that coat. 
And the devil whispered in her ear, now you win. She told a lie. Dr. Madison Serrett taught mathematics at Vanderbilt University for many years. Before he would give a test, the professor would admonish his class something like this. He would say, today I am giving you two examinations, one in trigonometry and the other in honesty. I hope you will pass them both. If you must fail one, fail trigonometry. See, there are many good people in the world who can't pass trig, but there are no good people in the world who cannot pass the examination of honesty. That's a good point, isn't it? The rules of honesty. Listen, listen. Egyptians don't hesitate to lie, to deceive. They don't, they don't think twice about that, but God's people ought to. The people of God ought to understand, and listen, my word is my bond. My word is the only thing that I have. Was what she said about Joseph true? Not at all. But did it work? Sure, it worked. And here's what Egyptians do. They look at a scenario and they say, it doesn't really matter whether it's true. What matters most is whether or not this works. And if this will make me successful, is this will help me to succeed in this matter that I'm willing to use it. You know what you're up against. Understand life in Egypt, it features the breaking of rules of marriage, the breaking of rules of honesty, but notice thirdly, the rules of due process. And don't abide by those rules. Verse number 19, and it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, end of the verse, that his wrath was kindled. Joseph doesn't get an opportunity to share his side of the story. Joseph doesn't get an opportunity to sit on a witness stand. There's no, there's no court of law here. There's no trial. There's no evidence that is sought for. No, no, Potiphar's wife is believed and Joseph is essentially canceled. We're living in a day of mob justice here in Egypt. A person can be canceled for something they did years ago that is no longer in step with how culture operates today. Good people are hurt when there's a rush to jump to conclusions about a matter. Listen, that's how it's done in Egypt. That's how life is in Egypt. Decisions are made and we'll ask questions later. Opinions are formed and decisions are made hastily in Egypt as the rules of due process are often discarded to meet the demands of the mob. So understand, if you're going to live in Egypt, and we all are, Egyptians don't play by the rules. The third and final point I want you to notice today, or fourth actually, and we'll be done. In Egypt, in Egypt, you're going to need the Lord. Would you look with me in verse number 21? The Bible tells us that he was bound and sent to the king's prison. But notice verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Just as Joseph was, I should say, just as the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, so the Lord was with him in the prison house as well. Maybe you've tried living life down here in Egypt on your own, and you've perhaps come to the conclusion that you need the Lord. If you haven't come to that conclusion, you need to. Would you look to him today? You need the Lord for salvation. You need the Lord for discernment of life's choices and decisions, and you need the Lord for help and strength for daily needs and daily struggles. I'm glad to know that even in Egypt, God is an ever-present help and refuge. Psalm 57, verses one to three says, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. For my soul trusteth in thee. 
Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge. Until these calamities be overpassed, I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. If you haven't figured it out yet, you're living life in Egypt. You need to know some things. Some truths that can be learned from Joseph's life and from Joseph's time in this land. And you need to know this. You're going to need the Lord. Do you have him today? Is he walking with you? Is he a regular, consistent part of your life? If not, if not, he wants to be. And that relationship could begin to be developed today. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. Listen, you you and I can never get too comfortable living in Egypt. Perhaps maybe you've slipped into a level in which you're sort of comfortable living down here. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a dangerous thing. You You better get your body armor back on. You better understand the devil is always coming. He's always lurking, waiting for an opportunity. You better prepare an escape route. How are you going to get out of Egypt? How are you going to get out of the temptation that is facing you here in this place? What are you going to resist based upon? Can I remind you the Egyptians don't abide by any rules. They do whatever feels good. It's sad to say that I I find a lot of Christians are trying to live life the same exact way. Whatever pleases me, whatever feels good. Listen, we're, 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 we're Hebrews spiritually. We're not Egyptians. We're God's people. We're people of faith. May God help us to play by the rules, to abide by the law that God has given to us, to be people of integrity. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.